0: There are many different ways in which we think about love for other human beings. Maybe we think about an older brother sticking up for his younger sister or his younger brother on the school bus on the play, or on the playground, and he steps up to the bully and he says, No, you won't treat them this way. You won't speak to them this way. That's my sister. That's my brother. Or maybe we think about a war zone where soldiers display sacrificial loyalty by banding together to save one of the men in their group. Or even on a much, much lighter note, we think about a team that journeys together in a tournament, much like March Madness, and eventually takes the championship. Go Heels. Or maybe a Maybe a local music group with which rehearsals and performances provide opportunity for relationship and a camaraderie and a special unity together with that friendship. We have relationships that give to us opportunity to experience closeness. We are glad when they are glad. And we grieve when they grieve we sorrow when they are missing out on something something the apostle paul kind of moves into that line of thinking gives us a peek into a special relationship that he has and in the text that we're looking at this morning specifically about the sorrow that he experiences on their behalf he sorrows because they're missing out on something. He loves them, so he sorrows. So if you haven't done so yet, would you please find the second half of the Christian New Testament, and then find the sixth book, the book of Romans, a letter written to Christians in Rome. I'm going to take, just by way of explanation this morning, I'm going to take a little bit longer in my introduction, in hopes that it helps us in the long run. I want to remind us, those of us who have been gathering for the series in Romans, who have been here all the way through it. So I want to remind us of the, the course that we're on. And, uh, and I hope that if you're one of the people who have jumped into the series kind of midstream, maybe this is your first time with us, or maybe you've only been with us a couple of months, that a bit of a review will also assist you in your understanding of Paul's message. By the way, all the sermons are from, that we preach here are available on Harvest podcast, on our website, on our YouTube channel, if those are helpful to you to go back and review, we we would want you to know about that. So what has the Apostle Paul written to the saints in Rome? We have announced each Sunday that we've gone through Romans that the overall theme of the book is to teach us about the undeserved, the unmatched, and the unstoppable gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, Paul tells us, is the power of God to salvation. To the Jews first, and also to the Gentiles. To everyone that believes. The gospel is the good news that Jesus died. That Jesus died in the place of sinners. And that God accepts Jesus' death as a payment. And that payment allows sinners to be absolved, to be cleansed. So God the Father looks on the payment that Jesus made on the cross... And for all those who are trusting in Jesus' payment, God sees Christ's payment as satisfactory. So God's anger for a sinner's sin is appeased. That good news, kind of in a nutshell there, is what Paul is unfolding over 16 chapters in this letter to the church at Rome. Specifically, we see Paul organize his, his teaching on the gospel, and we've kind of organized it this way into, into these different sections of, of Romans. So we've, we've looked at the priority of the gospel, that it is the power of God to salvation. We've looked at the heart of the gospel, that, that justification is by faith, that it's not up to our works, it's not up to our ethnicity, it's not up to something that we could do. The heart of the gospel is that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And our most recent weeks... Uh, we have been looking at the third section, the assurance of the gospel. Aren't you thankful for the assurance that the gospel brings to you as God's child? We don't have to wonder, do we? We know that uh, we, are, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We understand that though the first Adam sinned and as he served as our representative, we also sinned, we are sinners by birth and by choice, we also understand that there was a second Adam, Jesus Christ. And Jesus came, and he lived for us, and he died for us, and he fulfilled the law. And so by his obedience, we may, be, we may experience rescue. And as we get to chapter 8, we learn that there, because of that, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are of us who are in Christ Jesus. We learned that we are, that, the, that the love of God, we are inseparable from God's love. As we are his children so that brings us to that next section the defense of the gospel looking back that's the first eight chapters looking ahead at chapters of romans chapters 12 and through 16 we understand that those chapters are jam-packed with practical instruction on how we live in light of god's mercy Romans chapter 12, verse 1, is kind of a transitional verse for us, right? It says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, or as we'll learn, your spiritual worship, your act of worship. And so, Romans chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, are really, Paul transitions into a lot of practical living out of this gospel that he has been teaching us about well then what about chapters 9 10 and 11 I was tempted to preach 9 10 and 11 in one sermon and I know some of you would be like oh yeah we'll get to chapter 12 but we're going to go a little bit longer than one sermon we've labeled this section the defense of the gospel Paul is defending the gospel that he's already explained to us here he will address the sovereignty of God, especially in regards to the promises that God has already made to his people, the children of Israel. After reading chapter 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, hallelujah, I hope you, you reveled in that and you enjoyed that truth this week, and I hope you'll continue to go back to it every day of your life. But after reading of, of, of in Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God some readers, some people who are receiving this letter some people who have read other of, Paul, of Paul's letters the Pauline epistles might interpret it, that inseparable love of God as a license just to live however they want to live. Paul teaches otherwise. Further, after reading that nothing can separate us from the love of God, the question naturally rises to the surface. Well, what about Israel? What about God's promises to Israel? Because they had rejected him. In fact, the majority of Israel at Paul's time was rejecting God. What about Israel? What about God's promises to Israel? What would, would they be separated from, the, from God's love? Romans 9, 10, 11 teaches, teaches us that none of God's promises to Israel, none of God's promises to Israel will fail. None of God's promises to you or to me will fail either. Now, as we start our journey into Romans 9, 10, and 11, a quick heads up. These chapters require a little bit of thinking. I don't say that to scare you away from Romans 9, 10, and 11. That doesn't mean that you have to have a, a degree from Bible college to learn from Romans 9 and 11. We understand that all of God's word, all of it, is profitable for us. But you will need to think, to pray, to study. So I'll take this opportunity to remind you that each Friday morning we send out an email with Harvest Bible Church News for the weekend. And in that email, that I know that you all watch the video faithfully, um, you will be able to hear the text for this the Sunday, what text we'll be preaching. I would encourage you to read that text in advance, maybe multiple times, or read Romans 9 or the chapter that we're in. In fact, I would encourage you just to read the whole book of Romans uh, once a week. It takes about an hour to get through, to read uh, casually through the book of Romans. It's a great practice. It will greatly impact your walk with God. We should be reminded as we study through Romans 9, 10, and 11 that God is God (laughs) and that we are human. God is God, we are not. We can't fully understand the mind and the ways of the one who knows all things and who ordains all things. We don't fully understand the Trinity, but we believe the Trinity to be true. So with those introductory thoughts in mind, would you please follow along as I read from God's word, Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. I say in I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God or the worship of God and the promises whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Paul is defending the gospel. He's defending the reality that God is sovereign in salvation. God is sovereign in salvation while simultaneously being gracious and merciful. God is sovereign in salvation while simultaneously being gracious and merciful. The two do not conflict. Paul wanted to make sure that the people understood that God had not forsaken Israel. The church at Rome could have been thinking, well, if God doesn't keep his promises to his chosen people, Israel, how can we expect him to keep his promises to us as Gentile believers? Paul wanted Jews to understand that justification by faith alone is not for Gentiles only. Keeping the law was not a means of salvation for the Jews. Both in Old Testament and the New Testament, justification is by personal faith. Why are so many Jews unbelieving? Why is Israel rejecting the gospel of Jesus? This is one of Paul's main thrust of, of thought here. What about the nation of Israel? Has, has God discarded his chosen nation? Israel had held a favored position with God, but that has not kept God from disciplining a nation. The sovereignty of God in the gospel is both sobering and comforting. The promises that God makes to those who reject Him and the promises that God makes to those who trust Him will never fail. So I ask you this morning, are you trusting Him? Or are you rejecting him? Paul begins by considering the tragedy of rejecting God. The apostle tells us that his heart is in agony. He is in continual sorrow. He is in unceasing anguish. Why? Because his fellow Jews are rejecting Christ. He's writing to them and saying some are cut off from Christ. They are accursed. They have rejected the one who was made a curse for them. Isn't that what he wrote to the church at Galatia? In Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He writes at the end of Romans 9 that Israel did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. That's the reality. Israel missed the meaning of the law. The, the offered rescue by Christ. That's the tragedy. That's the sorrow. That's why Paul is in unceasing sorrow. He wants us to be convinced of his anguish so much so that he begins, he says, Believe me, I saved the truth in Christ. I am not lying. Believe me, believe me, he says. I'm not lying to you. Then he he virtually swears an oath by calling on his conscience and on the Holy Spirit to serve as witnesses. His grief about Israel is his, about Israel's rejection of Christ was so strong that he calls on members of the Trinity to attest to his anguish. And further, he emphasizes in emphasizing his agony, Paul speaks with hyperbole. And he tells us that he would throw himself into condemnation for the sake of his kinsmen. He loved these people so much that he says, I would rather be accursed, I would rather suffer condemnation than for these people to reject Christ. He's speaking hyperbolically, Now we know that from Romans 8, well, we just learned that it's not possible for Paul to actually forfeit his salvation, but he felt so strongly about their rejection that he, was, he said he would rather take their place. He was so concerned for their eternal souls of his fellow Jews that he, Pleads with us to believe him. He calls on his his conscience and God as as witnesses. He declares that he would rather be accursed than have them face condemnation. Paul's not messing around, is he? He wants the readers of his letter to be fully aware of the anguish of his hearts for his kinsmen, his fellow Jews. Paul understood. The tragedy of rejecting God. So what does all of Paul's grief mean to you and to me in 2022? Well, the people of Israel are not the only people who have rejected Christ. There are people all around us every day who have up to this point rejected Christ. Does that grieve you? I think of others in the scriptures who were grieved, like Samuel over King Saul's rejection of God. Samuel, recorded for us in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel did did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The weeping prophet Jeremiah grieved over Israel, recorded for us in Jeremiah 13, Hear and give ear. Be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains, and, and while you look for light, he turns it into gloom and makes it, it makes it deep darkness. But if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken Christian, it is proper for us to grieve for the lost. It's appropriate for us to consider people's rejection of Christ and to be sorrowful. In fact, it is not the mark of a Christian to look at others and say, well, they didn't deserve rescue. They don't deserve rescue. Have you done that? You get so ticked off at the the God-forsaking agenda of of a particular political movement. where you get so frustrated about the inhumane decisions of war criminals. Or the disgusting lifestyles that people choose. And you're tempted to look toward anger. You're tempted towards anger instead of pity and sorrow. Follow Christ and weep over those who reject Paul isn't looking down with condescension or rage or joy at those who have rejected Christ. He's not looking at himself and saying, hey, I haven't rejected Christ. What's wrong with you people? Get your act together. He looks at them with sorrow and pity and anguish. He's broken over their rejection. It's a tragedy. Grieve for groups and for individuals who reject Jesus. During Bible college, I was regularly reminded of this one phrase that was put forward in front of us over and over. It was said this way. The most sobering reality in the world today is that people are dying and going to hell today. Are you sobered by the reality of condemnation? When people reject Christ, does it grieve your hearts? Paul was grieved when people rejected Christ. So he spent his life proclaiming that the gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Jesus was grieved by those who rejected him, so he came to the earth to live among the people and to die for these people, making a payment because they had rejected him. Are you grieved over those who reject Jesus? Are you too caught up with getting the new device or vehicle or house or promotion? You're so caught up with things of this world that you don't have time to grieve over those who reject Jesus? Are you too busy with life to sorrow for those who reject Christ? What about people in distant lands who are rejecting God? Christian, let's open our ears to the cries of those who have not yet heard the name of Jesus. Let's be sobered but the absolute and the eternal tragedy it is to reject God. But grief and sorrow cannot be the only response that we have. What about an additional action step? Lancaster County is, is a great spot to live, isn't it? It's very moral. We're a moralistic people, especially in comparison to other places on the planet coming up, I think, on about 17 years as a resident, so I think I have enough years under my belt to say this. We here in Lancaster County tend to hole up, hobbit up in Lancaster County, don't we? Generation after generation of families, we, we kind of stay put. And people who, who do leave often end up what? Coming back, right? It's like great big magnets that pulls us back to Lancaster. In fact, the the cynical part of me thinks it's it's why even say it, but I'll say it. It's well and good for, for, for all of us, right? For other families. But I know how our family is going to work. Let's all stick together. Let's not get in, let's not send out. Let's all stick to Lancaster County. As my kids get older, I'm thinking about them moving away or staying and paying rent because those are the only options, right? Just kidding, mostly. And I can't think about it too much because then I'll be like a blubbering mess up here in front of you and that's not good for any of us. But our number one goal as Christian parents is not to keep them close. It's nice. I love my kids a lot. But if God calls them not to go be a missionary, he calls them to be a missionary, it's great, but if God calls my kids to go be a a doctor or an engineer or a a trash truck driver or whatever, and to live out the gospel in another place of the world, in another place besides Lancaster County, I'm going to say, go for it, by God's grace. I will say, go for it. The Lord bless you and keep you. Harvest, the events of the last two years have, have changed all of us. We've been talking about that a bit in elders' meetings. It's changed pastoral ministry as well. And it has had a significant effect on the Christian church, the big church, not just Harvest. So both nationally, the the church, and at Harvest specifically, we've seen a bit of a turn inward, like we're looking at each other. We've been forced to emphasize rightfully and, and consider our practices and our relationships and our philosophies of what's happening inside the church. And that's good. And we have instruction from God's word for us to, to follow that. And we must follow that. But we can get comfy with that, can't we? We can say, oh, I don't have to be at every ga- gathering. I can just live stream. I don't have to volunteer in kids ministry. Other people can do that. And the end result is that we're looking at each other and we don't have enough contact with those on the outside. But the New, church, the New Testament church is called to, to go. We have been commissioned to look beyond our walls and certainly beyond the screen of a live stream service and to make disciples of all nations. So by the grace of God and with, the, with authority from God's word, let's us, the people of Harvest Bible Church, turn our eyes outward. We have opportunity in our community every summer with vacation bible school. It's coming up in July, I think, is the right dates. And yeah, it is July. And we need volunteer, we need scores of volunteers every year for that. And we see a lot of church kids from other churches come in and enjoy vacation bible school. But why don't we make it an effort this year especially to turn our eyes outward? To our community, the people in our neighborhood are the kids of the people we work with, and bring them to Vacation Bible School so they can hear the good news of Jesus. Did you hear what Dr. Acosta uh, told us last Sunday nights? I hope you were here for that challenge. We have those services intentionally to enlarge our vision and to give us opportunity to partner with what God is doing in other parts of the world. Dr. Acosta challenged us to consider our own involvement in kingdom work. Here? or abroad we have gospel partners we have four of them who are visiting with us this summer for at least one weekend each it takes it takes effort to build those partnerships to gather with them to hear them and to pray with them somebody said it this way go as in go somewhere and be gospel light go send foreign fields abroad or disobey those are our options The most sobering reality in the world is that people are dying and going to hell today. People are rejecting Jesus. Does that grieve your hearts? A quick word of hope for those of you who are grieving the death of a loved one who had continued to reject Jesus until their death. I know that that is sorrowful for you and that you grieve over that. But I was helped by these words from Pastor John Piper this week. He said it this way, those who die in their sinful rebellion, we say now in, we say it now in tears, will not have the power to hold heaven hostage with their own misery. Here we groan and weep. There we are consumed with the glory of Christ. So our grief for them is not eternal if we are in Christ. The sovereignty of God in the gospel is both sobering and comforting. The promises that God makes to those who reject him and the promises that God makes to those who trust him will never fail. Are you trusting or are you rejecting? Paul outlines for us the tragedy of rejecting God. But Paul goes on in verses 4 and 5, and he talks about the opportunity of trusting God. Perhaps you have gone on an activity and you've experienced uh, one of those escape rooms uh, for an adventure, maybe with your workplace or with your family. But you know how it goes. They lock, you up, they lock your group up into this room and they give you clues that lead to another clue. And eventually, those clues lead to finding a key to exit the room. Obviously, the idea originated with a babysitter who wanted to make their job a little bit easier that night. What happens in an escape room? You can be really, really, really close to getting out before the clock goes double zero. But you could still be locked in, even though you're very close. You have lots of opportunities, but you remain unsuccessful. Paul hints at that in, in Romans 9, 4 and 5. He says, who are the Israelites? To, so he's talking about his kinsmen according to the flesh, the end of verse 3, who are Israelites. So he's about to outline nine different privileges that these kinsmen have. Who are Israelites, who have the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises, who are the fathers and of whom the, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, Who over overall God-blessed forever. Amen. Paul affirms that Israel is God's special people, that Israel is blessed. The Jews who had rejected Israel the Lord were incredibly close to the truth. They indeed had opportunity to trust God. And so Paul lists these, these nine privileges of the Jewish people. Why would he do this? Why would he go through this list? He does this to further emphasize the tragedy of, re, of those who reject God. First of all, he says the, the, the first privilege is that they are Israelites. They, being a descendant of Israel was a privilege in and of itself. And then he says they have the, they, they have the adoption or they, whom pertaineth the adoption. We read in Hosea, when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. National Israel was in some ways God's child. Salvation is always by faith. They were God's chosen people. And he says they also, the third benefit or privilege is they have the glory. Israel had experienced the Shekinah glory of God. At Sinai, God's presence was, uh, was made known to them in the holy of holies. They understood it. This was not something that other nations were able to experience. This was unique to Israel. Paul continues with the list of privileges, and he refers to the covenants. We think about the, the Abrahamic covenant, where, where Abraham was told that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. We think about the, the Mosaic covenant, where the law came. Uh, it was given to Israel specifically. We think about uh, David and how the, the promise that, that, was, that the, the kingdom would, would come through his line. It would be an eternal kingdom. He mentions the law, the oracles of God. God had given his law to Israel, not to any of the other nations of the world. He says here in, uh, about the services that were given, the service of God or the, the worship of God. You remember all of the, the sacrificial and ceremonial systems? Some of you have been reading through the, the Bible um, systematically at the, starting at the beginning of the year. And you've, you've gone through Leviticus and you've read all of the, the ceremonial laws and the, the offerings and the cleansing and the other means of worship. All the tabernacle practices. All of that pointed to the substitutional work of Jesus. And that was unique to Israel. They had a, an opportunity that other people didn't have. He refers to the promises at the end of verse number 4. I think this is probably referring to the promise of the Messiah. Jesus came from Israel, not from another nation. As promised in the Garden of Eden, as prophesied in Isaiah, Christ would come from Israel. There was a closeness that Israel was privileged to have. He refers to the fathers in verse number 5, or the patriarchs. They weren't perfect. They had all kinds of problems. But it was through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that the foundations of all these blessings were laid. And then Paul, finally in this list of privileges, he reminds them that Christ came from Israel. The incarnation required that Jesus have some ethnicity to be be a human. to To become a human meant that Jesus had to be a race. So it wasn't an accident. God chose for Jesus to be a Jew, to come from the line of Abraham and David. All nine of these privileges gave Israel a front row seat to what God was doing, to the truth, of the one, to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Out of Israel came the only one who could reconcile to God the people who had rejected God. Israel had great opportunity to trust God. Let's again think about it in our own situation. Let's consider how privileged we are. Lancaster County has gospel preaching churches all over the place. And whether or not we grew up in Lancaster County, many of us grew up in Christian homes. It's a huge privilege, isn't it? Kids, if your parents teach you about Jesus, thank them and then pray and thank God that your parents teach you about Jesus. Further, we have the Word of God at our fingertips, multiple good translations in our native language we can understand, multiple copies of the book in, or in, in book format or in digital formats. We have the privilege of having the Bible that tells us all about the good news of Jesus. We're close. Israel had all these privileges and still rejected. It. It's possible. For someone at Harvest Bible Church to have all these privileges to be utterly surrounded with the gospel but still to reject God. Friend see the futility of trying to reconcile yourself to God. See the need of being rescued because of your own personal rejection of God. Jesus welcomes sinners. He says come unto me. Turn your heart from your sin and trust in his payment to appease God's anger for your sin. That's the invitation that's offered to you today. There are a lot of blessed, privileged people in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Have you noticed that? Everyone feels blessed. Everyone thinks that they are saved or they say they are saved. But it's possible that people have had opportunity but not belief. Knowledge, but not repentance. The sovereignty of God in the gospel is both sobering and comforting. The promises that God makes to those who reject Him and the promises that God makes to those who trust Him will never fail. Are you rejecting or are you trusting? Paul teaches us about the tragedy of rejecting God the opportunity of trusting God. And then very briefly, as he closes out verse number five, he points us to the blessing of being God. So he lists these these privileges, and then at the end, he talks about where Christ came from, from Israel, and then he says, who is over all? God, blessed forever, amen. This is Paul's way of declaring the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is God. Paul reverses the normal order of, biblical, of a biblical doxology. He puts the word blessed after the name of God. And by doing so, Paul was communicating that Jesus is God. Jesus became accursed for the people who had rejected him. Jesus was willing to die. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we who are sinners might be made righteous in him. And thus, Jesus has blessed the people of the world. In Romans chapter 10, we'll get there in a few weeks, Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Friend, is that your desire? and Is that your heart's desire and prayer for those that you know who have rejected Christ, who are currently rejecting Christ? Is that your prayer for them? We gather each Wednesday night's, or a time of prayer. We distribute a prayer guide, and on the back of that prayer guide is a list of people who we think have not accepted Christ. They may be close to an opportunity, but at this point, as far as we understand it, they have rejected God, and we pray for them. We invite you to join us in prayer in those meetings. Of course, we're invited to pray always, as, and, and follow Paul's suggestion that our hearts desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Harvest, let's be sobered by the future of those who reject Christ. But let's not only grieve, let's step into action. What can you do? You can speak of the gospel. You can share the gospel. You can just live out the gospel, the good news of of mercy and grace and compassion and God's concern and His word against sin and rejection. You can live that out. You can pray. You can send. You can give. Because you care for those who have not yet accepted Jesus. As we consider the seriousness of eternity for us and for others, let's be reminded that for Christians, our only hope is found in Jesus Christ. He's all that we have. He's all that we need. He is the way, the truth. Let's bow together for prayer.